As you're turning your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, there's an outline in your bulletin titled today's message is called Amazing Grace and Its Provisions. But as you're turning to Titus, let me ask the question. When you leave here today and you're walking to your car in the parking lot at Christ Community Church and you look down and you see a copper penny, how many of you would bother to stoop down and pick that penny up? Well, quite a few of you. But I bet a lot of us would just look at it and walk on, right? Now, if it's a nickel, a dime, a quarter, you'd definitely pick it up, right? But what if it was a 1942 wheat penny? Would you pick that one up? It's worth about 20 bucks, right? But you wouldn't pick up just a normal penny, a lot of people, because it would take 400 of them to get one gallon of gas across the street. But you might get, if you sold this one, you'd get 20 bucks maybe. But there are some very valuable pennies out there. A 1909 SVDB, you might get $1,300 just for an ordinary one. A 1914 D Lincoln cent, you might get $2,200 for. And the two most valuable pennies out there, a 1943 copper wheat penny, one sold for $250,000, and a 1944 steel Lincoln cent, one sold for $400,000. A penny can be valuable, but we don't think it's very valuable, right? But in the Christian world, like me, I was raised in a Christian home and been to church my whole life. There's a word we use that I don't think we really know how valuable it is, how precious it is, how amazing it is. And we just sang this song, and that word is grace, grace. Do you think it's valuable? I really don't think we sometimes in our church realize how valuable it is. If you did, it would affect your giving, it would affect your serving, it would affect your love for Christ. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I don't think we see ourselves as wretches. After all, the hymn writer of that song was a slave trader, right? And he would throw slaves off that ship into the sea when they didn't have food. He was guilty. But we tend to think we're pretty good people, don't we? Raised in a good country, good family, we do good. Do we really understand amazing grace and how valuable it is? You know, there's some denominations that have actually changed the hymn book to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. They've taken that word out now. But do we Christians really understand it? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we have groups of so-called Christians that have changed the words in the hymn, amazing grace. And they don't really understand it, I don't think. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir can sing Amazing Grace, but they certainly don't know grace. The L.A. Gay Men's Chorus can sing Amazing Grace, but they don't understand grace. The Catholics sing it, and they don't understand grace. But do we believers in Jesus Christ truly understand it, comprehend how valuable it is, and what it exactly provides? Many years ago, somebody gave me the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And I like to meditate upon that, the riches that grace gives us. But a proper definition of grace is unmerited favor toward wicked, unworthy sinners by which he delivers them from condemnation and death. That leads us to our text this morning. It was last April, and I could not go to Myanmar and teach the pastors, so we Zoomed, but I taught the whole book of Titus. And as I was teaching the pastors, I came across these verses that we're going to look at today, 
And I just fell in love with him. And I'm still in love with him. So in April, when we went to Eight Days of Hope in Louisiana and we didn't know where to go to church, we just met in a park. I told Tommy, I got to share these verses with the group. And I just put a rush sermon together in about 20 minutes. And I taught these verses. So some of you are there. We're going to hear some of the same things. But I've had nine months to prepare this sermon now since then. But I'm still in love with these verses as I am now. I think these verses in Titus 2, 11 to 14 are the greatest verses in the Bible on grace. Let's read them. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Before I read them, just a couple things about Titus. You know, we call Titus the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. They're written for pastors to teach. So, of course, when you come to Titus, you have three chapters, only 46 verses. And chapter 1 is about elder qualifications and appointing elders. Then you come to chapter 2, and you notice in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul is going to address five specific groups of people, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and bond servants. And when you have time, read that again, because it'll put our sermon into the context. He teaches those five groups, and he gives them 28 characteristics that are to follow, self-control, steadfastness, sober-minded, things like that. Five groups of people in the church, and... 28 characteristics. Then all of a sudden, in the second paragraph in chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, he reminds them of the entire Christian life. Let's read Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we study your word today, may your Holy Spirit teach us. May we leave here knowing more of you and what it is we are to do. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three words we're going to study today that are biblical terms we use a lot. And for some of you, you know them. This will be nothing more than a Sunday school lesson. But for others, I don't want anybody to leave today that doesn't understand the words about justification, sanctification, and glorification, which encompass the entire life of a Christian's walk. Go to Titus chapter 1, verse 1, because he has these words right there. there. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's justification. Then he says, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That's sanctification. Then verse 2 he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promises before ages began. That's glorification. So we have these three terms even before we come to chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. As we look at what I call the greatest verses on grace in the Bible, verse 11 is about the past. Justification is the salvation from the penalty of sin or saving grace. Verse 12 is about the present, sanctification, your walk in Christ now, and salvation from the power of sin. So I would call that strengthening grace. Verse 13 is about the future, that great day when we go home to be with God, glorification, the salvation from the presence of sin, and I would call that supreme grace. And verse 14 backs up and supports these three verses. So let's look at point one in your outline. Grace that saves us from the penalty of sin, verse 11, 
And this is what justification is about. It says for. Let's stop right there. For. Our text begins with the preposition for. J. Vernon McGee says that word for is the cement that holds all the Bible verses together. And it's true. It's a function word that indicates a purpose. Before we talk about grace, we have to talk about why grace is necessary. Why do we need grace? And you all think you know that the Bible says we're sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, and child who is born is born in sin and has lived in sin. You know, when we go to the parks on Saturday at Christ Community Church, we go to the parks on Saturday and we try to share with people the gospel. We ask them questions. And the first question we ask them is, when you die, will you go to heaven or hell? And I think I've only ever had one person tell me hell in my life. Most everybody, 99% of people would say heaven. Then we follow up with a second hypothetical situation question, which we say, if God should ask you, why should I allow you into heaven, what would you say? It still amazes me today that pretty much everybody says, because I'm a good person or I've done good. They keep saying that. You know, we seem to have a scale here in America. Zero is Hitler, right? And maybe 95 is Mother Teresa. So somewhere I'm between there. I'm certainly not like Hitler. I'm not like a murderer. But I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, all those good works she did. I'm maybe at 80. I'm maybe at 90. We seem to think we're good in America, and that's why we got rid of that word wretch and amazing grace. But what does the Bible say? Listen carefully. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.3, we are children of wrath. The Bible says in 1 John 3.10, we are children of the devil. The Bible says in John 8.34, we are a slave to sin. The Bible says in Romans 8.8, 8, you cannot please God. Romans 8.7 says you cannot obey God's law. John 3.20 says we cannot come into the light and we hate the light. Romans 3.11 says we do not seek God. Romans 3.12 says we do not do good. 1 John 5.19 says that we follow the course of the world and the prince and power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19, well, I said it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says we're blinded by the gospel by Satan. Romans 11.32 says we're co-signed to disobedience. Ephesians 2.3 says we carry out the passion of the flesh and the desires of the body and mind. Jeremiah 17.9 says our heart is deceitful and desperately sick. John 8.44 says it's our will to do Satan's desire. Romans 8.7 says that we're hostile to God. Hebrews 3.13 says we're hardened by the deceitfulnesses of sin, if you don't know Jesus Christ. It was a 19th century Scottish preacher, John Eddy, who said, men without Christ are death walking. The beauties of holiness do not attract man in his moral insensibility, nor do the miseries of hell deter him. You can talk about heaven to him, and he's not interested. You can talk about hell to him, and he's not afraid. Now, this kind of man doesn't need renewal. This kind of man doesn't need repair. This kind of man doesn't need restoration, resuscitation. This kind of man needs resurrection. He needs life because he's dead. That was before grace. Now let's look at the arrival of grace. We said four, and then the next beautiful words come. The grace of God has appeared in verse 11. Previously, we were under the law, 
As the Apostle Paul said, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us our need of salvation. John MacArthur calls this phrase, grace of God, grace incarnate, Jesus Christ in the flesh. And John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. By human perspective, when I think of when Christ came, it seems like to me he came at the wrong time. If you were with us on Wednesday nights when we studied the book of Daniel, you remembered we studied the, the great prophecies in Daniel a lot, and there were four great kingdoms prophesied by Daniel, right? And the last one was the Roman Empire, and it was described as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong beast in Daniel. That's when Jesus came, when the Romans had conquered Israel, when crucifixion was the method of execution. Seems like to me that Jesus came at the wrong time, but for God, it was the exactly the right time. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. So grace arrived in the form of Jesus Christ. What was the cost of grace? For here, you need to go to verse 14 in Titus. And the first part of verse 14 says, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness? Who is Jesus Christ from verse 13? And the cost of grace was the very life of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It says redeem. Redeem means the releasing of someone held captive who was released upon payment of a ransom. Jesus Christ paid a ransom for us that we could have eternal life. It was that very purpose that Jesus came to earth. Mark 10.45 says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians 5.25 says, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then let's move on to subpoint D, the effects of grace. First off, what it isn't, and then what it is. What it isn't. The NASB and the ESV Bibles, which most of you have, say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Time out, okay? We see a contrast when we look at here in verse 14. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us. Okay, so there's us, and then there's them. It says that we're his possession, okay? And then there's others who are not God's possession. So maybe the NIV, which I don't use a lot, has the best translation. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. This text is not teaching universalism, which some people claim. There's an opportunity for salvation. All you got to do is go back to Titus 1.1 we read, for the faith of God's elect. There are elect and then there's non-elect. The all people here in verse 1 refers to all humanity. Salvation is available to everyone, all classes of people, all colors of people, genders and age, but it's only effective for those who believe. So that's what it is, and it's not universalism. What is it? It says bringing salvation. When you trust Jesus Christ and make a decision to be a real born-again Christian, you are declared not guilty of all sin, past, present, and future because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Romans 5.1 says... Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All those enmities, all those things we read about the non-Christian, we're at peace with God when you become to Christ. What does grace do? Grace saves us. 
The word grace is used four times in this book of Titus. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 5, the first three words says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Grace saved us. I would trust that all of you know that great verse about grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you don't know that verse, you better memorize it. Okay, because I heard yesterday that the Jehovah Witnesses are back going door to door as of yesterday. So maybe some of you had your door knocked on it. You better have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized. There's 62 million Catholics in the United States today. You better have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized. So if you don't, you got a homework assignment. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Grace saves us, and only grace saves us. Grace is also free. Romans 5.17 says that we received abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You can't buy grace. You can't do good works. Even Mother Teresa and all her good works in India could not receive the free gift of righteousness. She was doing it by works. Grace saves us. Grace is free, and grace is the only way. When you go to that great chapter of Acts 15, which they have the Jerusalem Council which is about uh, how, how is man saved? Is it by grace or is it by works? Acts 15, 11 says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans eleven five and 6 mentions grace four times. It says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace saves us from the penalty of sin. That's justification. Before we leave verse 11 and go on to verse 12, I need to ask the question, have you been justified? Metaphorically speaking, let's look at a metaphor. Have you gone into the great courtroom of the Almighty God? Have you gone in there knowing you are guilty? Knowing that the sentence is eternity in hell? Knowing that the judge is going to sentence you to hell? But you had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you had believed and you had accepted Jesus Christ. And before the judge will slam that gavel down and declare you guilty, an advocate stands up in that courtroom named Jesus Christ. And he points to you and he says, I died for him. My blood was shed for him. And the judge, almighty God, will slam the gavel down and will declare you not guilty. That's justification. Because the almighty God judge is looking at you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he does not see sin because all your sin was put upon that advocate, Jesus Christ. That's a metaphor. But you know what's not a metaphor? If you have Jesus Christ in your heart today, you've gone metaphorically into that courtroom. But if you don't, you're not going to have that metaphor. You're going to have a real description of judgment someday. And it's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. I won't turn there for time, but it's called the great white throne judgment. That is not a metaphor. That is one of the seven judgments in the Bible. And that is a judgment for all non-believers. And it says twice, the book of life was opened up. If your name is not written in the book of life, three times it says they were cast into the lake of fire. That is a real description of what will happen to non-believers. That is where there will be some good Americans, some good people who will cry out and say, Lord, didn't we, didn't we uh, uh, prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And Jesus Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawless. It's very simple. Either you pay for your sins in hell or Jesus Christ paid for them on the cross. 
Are you justified? It's all by grace. Indeed, it is amazing grace that God would save a wretch like me. Verse 11 is about saving grace from the penalty of sin. Let's move on to verse 12. Once we're saved by grace, that's not the end of it. It's the only beginning of it. So point two is grace saves us from the power of sin. It says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in his present age. This is the verse of sanctification. Once you're justified, it's only the beginning. You have a long life to live. Well, the thief on the cross, it may have been a few minutes. For other people like you and me, it might be 50, 60, 70 years where we walk and work in this process of sanctification. Sanctification is salvation from the power of sin. It's conquering sin, or I would call this strengthening grace. God gives us grace. The Holy Spirit gives us grace to conquer sin and to live a holy life. But let me clarify what it's not before I clarify what it is. The Catholics state that, like today, we brought a baby. Now, when we brought that baby for dedication today, we're technically dedicating the parents. There's no salvation in what we did today for that baby. That baby must grow up and make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, independent of their parents. But the Catholics would bring a baby, and they would sprinkle it, and they would call that baptism and say, that begins the process of sanctification. That is absolutely not true. That baby cannot call upon the name of the Lord. That baby doesn't understand anything. There are nine baptisms in the book of Acts. They're all by adults, okay? So the Catholics have it wrong. But then there are Christians that have it wrong too. We have the antinomian view that says that the gospel dispensation of grace is no obligation because all you need is faith. I just need to believe. Closely related to that is easy believism or the free grace movement. And some of us who came from the previous church before Christ in church know this uh, because people like Charles Ryrie and Zane Hodges say all you need to do is have a mere intellectual assent of the truths of the gospel and you're saved. Now, John MacArthur was the opposition to that, who's saying, no, Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, and that's called lordship salvation. So easy believism, free grace movement, antinomian Catholics, as well as all the cults, they have sanctification wrong. Once you're justified, once you're a believer, once you've been adopted into Jesus Christ, once you've been regenerated and born again, you begin a process called sanctification. And what is that? Well, let's go to verse 14 again. The middle part of verse 14, it says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. First Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Once we come to Christ, it's time to get rid of the sin. It's time for the drunkard, the adulterer, the pornographer, whatever sin has conquered your life to get rid of it. Second Corinthians 5.7 says the old is gone, the new has come. Okay? So positionally, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, but we still have to live a practical life of sanctification each and every day. You know, our society today, they, at first we overlooked evil today, right? Society overlooks evil today. Then society permits evil, right? Then society legalizes evil. Then they promote evil, and now they're celebrating evil. And now they're going to persecute those who still call it evil. That's our society when it comes to evil. But what about Christians? When we come to Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, I won't take the time to turn there, but very familiar chapter. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then Apostle Paul says, by no means. 14 times Paul will use that term, by no means. It's the strongest Greek expression, basically slamming his fist down saying, no, you cannot live in sin. Romans 6.14 says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but you are under grace. And some of us who are trying to live this life of sanctification need to remember that we're living by grace. We need to remember that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Turn with me to Psalm 149. You know I like to preach Psalms, so I got to go there once, right? Uh, Psalms 1 begins with, Uh, talking about the man who is blessed if he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, if he doesn't stand in the way of sinners, if he doesn't sit with scoffers. But Psalm 149 is technically the last psalm because Psalm 150 is a doxology. So you start with holiness in Psalm 1, and when you come to Psalm 149, I find it interesting that Psalms ends with holiness. In Psalms 149, verse 1, it depends on your translation, but it says... Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Maybe your translation says holy ones. Psalm 149 verse 5. Let the godly exult in glory. Psalms 149 verse 9, the last verse. It says this is honor for all his godly ones. So either your translation says godly ones or holy ones. So from Psalms 1 to Psalms 149 is about the right path, being holy, as is the whole Bible. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's just a simple way of saying we die to sin, we hate sin, and we live for righteousness each and every day. Probably the, the best verse in the Bible about this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, write it down, memorize it. It says, and we all, he's talking about believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That verse describes us that we're going through a transformation Okay, the Holy Spirit is helping us to hate sin, to sin less, and to live for righteousness each and every day. No excuses allowed. You can't say there's no little sins. You can't say, well, everybody's doing it. You can't uh, deny and tamper with the word of God. We are to live sanctified lives, and grace helps us. Now notice in verse 12, uh, Paul will now say two things negatively and three things positively. He says he's going to train us, grace trains us. How does it work? There's a training process. The word training there, maybe your translation says instructs us or discipling us, educating us, nurturing us. Jesus taught us. The apostles taught us in the word of God, and today the Holy Spirit teaches us. So there's a training process when you come to Christ. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself to godliness, Okay. For while bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value every way. You guys, did anybody here go to the gym? Okay. 
Now, if you're like me, I was, I was sweating I could fit in the suit today after Christmas because I ate so much the last few weeks. But you know what you need to do, right? You know if you need to exercise. You know what foods you need to abstain for, get rid of the sweets or whatever. You know. That's the physical world. You know when you need to get off the couch potato and start exercising, what foods to eat, what foods not to eat. You know that. But in the spiritual world, you also know what you need to do too. There's a, there's a renouncing. It says renouncing yourself. Renouncing means you deny sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to abstain from sin. Okay? So he's going to give two, two negatives here. The first one is ungodliness, and the second one is worldly desires. Ungodliness is just a lack of reverence for God. These are the characteristics of the non-believer. You know, in Galatians 5, uh, verses 22 to 23, I'm sure you all know the nine fruit of the Spirit, right? We all know those. But do you ever read the verses before that? The sins of the flesh? It says there sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists 15 sins. Those are characteristics of the non-believer, ungodliness. They want nothing to do with God. Those are the things that we put away when we come to Christ, when we live a sanctified life. The second negative he says that we need to train about is worldly desires. Now, these are sins that we may not commit, but we desire. You can be poor and be filthy greedy, right? Okay? You can be sexually immoral and not be involved by, by lusting, by looking at pornography, not actually committing sexual sin. So the worldly desires, whatever is ungodly, things that we do, things that we watch, things that we see, things that we hear. First John two fifteen and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, from this world. So there's a denial process, anything that is ungodly, anything that is a worldly desire. Then he moves to three positives here in verse 12. He says that we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So first off, he uses that word self-controlled. Maybe your translation says live sensibly, okay? It just means you have control over all the faculties of your life. When you come to Christ, you're going to learn to abstain from alcohol. You're going to learn to abstain from drugs, from all the evil things. You know, there's no other book in the Bible that has that word self-controlled more than this book of Titus. Five times it has the book, the word self-control. And four of those, interestingly, or at least three of them, are mentioned with the five groups in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. He addresses older men to be self-controlled. He addresses younger women to be self-controlled. He addresses younger men to be self-controlled. Interesting, he doesn't address older women. So maybe older women are better at self-control than the other groups. But self-control is you having control over the issues of your life in every way. And you do that by hating sin, by abstaining from sin, by not wanting to sin, by confessing sin. Then he moves on to another positive characteristic, upright. Upright just means you righteously, faithfully obeying the word of God. You know, there's 28 characteristics listed in Titus chapter 2, 1 to 10. You read through them sometime and ask yourself, how are you doing? But you know, if you're not reading the Bible, John Piper said, if you don't read the Bible daily, 
if you don't memorize the Bible in part, if you don't linger over the Bible and meditate upon it and remember it and muse upon it, the best you can hope for is a weak Christian life. How are you doing in that process of sanctification? It's the eighth day of January. Did you begin your Bible reading again in Genesis? Did you begin your Bible reading in Matthew? Okay, it's not too late to start, okay? The third positive characteristic he mentioned is godly. A godly person honors God. A godly person loves God. He prays to him. He serves him. He ties to him, okay? In verse 11, we use the metaphor of going into the courtroom of God, but there's another metaphor we could use in verse 12, and that would be found in Luke 9:23, a very familiar verse that says, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a metaphor for the Christian life. When you are justified and you come to Christ, metaphorically, now in the process of sanctification, you are walking to your death with the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ took his cross to his death and were to take ours, okay? Uh, J.C. Ryle says, it costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, all you got to do is go to church. It's cheap and easy work just to go to church. But to hear Christ's voice, to follow Christ, to confess Christ, requires much self-denial and requires everything you have. We've spoken of grace that saves us from the penalty of sin in verse 11. We've spoken of grace that saves us from the power of sin in verse 12. Now let's look at the glorious future because of grace in verse 13. Grace that saves us from the presence of sin. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, that's point one. Uh, working is point two, and then the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is sub-point three. So we had saving grace in verse 11, strengthening grace in verse 12. I would call this supreme grace, okay? You know that acronym we gave you, God's riches at Christ's expense? Well, we have riches on earth, right? We have peace with God. We have forgiveness of sin. We have fellowship. We have a lot of riches here, but most of those glorious riches found in Christ Jesus when we get to heaven. Okay, so first off, we have to wait. It says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. For some of us, it may be 50, 60, 70 years of waiting, right? But with confident certainty, we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the blessed hope here. That's the name for Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. In verse 11, he was called grace incarnate, but here he's called the blessed hope. And there's two ways we receive that blessed hope. If you die in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. If, you have Jesus, if you're justified and you're walking in sanctification and you go home to be with the Lord, instantly, instantly, your soul is with Jesus Christ forever. But Paul's talking here about the rapture of believers, I believe. There are two famous chapters in the New Testament, and I won't have time to read them today, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 13 to 18, it says that we will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15 is the other great chapter in the rapture, and it says that we will be changed in a moment, instantly, okay? This is the culmination of redemption, okay? We're instantly going to be changed, and this body that you have now, which is described as a tent, you will get a new body when Jesus Christ comes. But while we do that, what do we do? We don't just wait, we work. And go to verse 14. It says, people who are zealous 
to do good works. You don't just sit around and wait for Jesus Christ to return. If you're justified by grace and you're working in the process of sanctification by grace, you're going to be zealous to do good works. This book of Titus only has 46 verses, but the word works is mentioned seven times. Two times it says works, then it says good works five times. Verses 2, 7, verses 2, 14 here. In chapter 3, it says it in chapter, verse 1, verse 8 and 14, okay? It's about works, okay? Works that don't save us, but works that we do while we're waiting for Jesus Christ to come. If you are possessed by God, you're eager to serve in his kingdom by doing good works. Because you're justified by grace and you're walking in a life of sanctification by grace, this includes being zealous to do good works. We mentioned that verse you need to have memorized, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? By grace you've been saved through faith. Verse 10 says that God has created in eternity past works for you to do, okay? So we've got to be zealous. If you really understand amazing grace, if you understand how valuable that grace is, if you meditate upon it, you're going to want to be serving God. You're going to want to be doing good works for God. Let's move to the last point, subpoint: the appearing. It says the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember in Acts 1.11, it said that the, the angels told those bewildered disciples who were looking at Jesus as he went up in the clouds. They said, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back again in the same way he went up in the heaven. And here in Titus 2, verse 13, we have one of the greatest declarations of the deed of Jesus Christ in all of scriptures. It says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators try to split this and say, well, it's God and Jesus Christ. It's not. Uh, you can look up the, grand, the Greek Granville Sharp rule, but I, could, I won't waste time talking about that, but when it says thee there, there's a definite article which means God and the Savior are the same person. And then when you look at verse 14, it says who and himself refers back to a singular person. So God and Savior are Jesus Christ. This is the verse that you need to share with the Jehovah Witnesses, by the way. Number three, in the Old Testament, God is referred as great, but the New Testament, only the Son is referred as great. And then, number four, in the New Testament, the appearing always speaks of the Son coming. So this, the God and Savior are one in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ returns, that's when we'll be glorified. That's when we will be absolutely free from the presence of sin, okay? Uh, there will be a total and permanent removal of sin from our lives. We will receive a new body. And glorification is ultimate grace. The race is over. The fight is over. The wait is over. Life on earth is over. Heaven awaits. I saw a quote from a pastor yesterday. He said, soon, Christian, no more pain, no more depression, no more sin, no more fighting demons, no more darkness, no more night, no more despair, no more conflict, no more disagreement, no more attacks, no more hate, no more evil. You know, we will have a glorified body. The Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children, and now what will be has not yet been appeared, but when he appears, we shall be like him. The greatest thing about glorification is we're going to have a new body. And you know something about that body, it's going to be imperishable. It's not going to grow old. It's going to be powerful, not like a, 
a Marvel Superman character, but it's not going to have any stain of sin or any, any sickness, complete in power and strength. It's also going to be recognizable. It's also, for some of you, you'll like this, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious in beauty. The second thing about heaven, I want you to realize that we're going to be citizens of heaven. Right now, I think we have about 18 people signed up to go to Argentina in July, maybe more still contemplating and going. But about half of them are applying to get a passport because you need a United States passport to travel to a foreign country. But if you're justified, you're walking in the process of sanctification, you have a passport of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and you have a citizenship. Philippians 3.20 says that we are citizens of heaven. The third great thing about, about glorification is eternal life. We, the fourth stanza that we read of Amazing Grace, it says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. So we're going to have a glorified body. We're going to have a citizenship of heaven. We're going to have eternal life. Number four, when we're glorified, we're going to have a home. I don't know if it's going to be a mansion on a hilltop. When I grew up in a small church in Pomona, we used to sing that great song. Do you remember that song? I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, that silver line. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk on streets of gold. So we're going to have a glorified body. We're going to have a citizenship in heaven. We're going to have eternal life forever. We're going to have a home. And number five, probably the least thing talked about in evangelical Christianity in the New Testament is rewards. We're going to have rewards. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or bad. This is not a judgment of sin. This is one of the seven judgments in the Bible, but this is called the Bema Seat Judgment for what you've done, good or bad. Now, the bad there doesn't refer for sin because sin has already been judged when you're justified. What that means maybe is if you're lazy, if you're not serving, we're going to receive a judgment for rewards. Now, we're ultimately going to take those rewards and cast them at the feet of Jesus when we reserve him. But I don't think we even talk about rewards in evangelical church because most people, I got my ticket to heaven. I'm happy. I'm going. It's going to be great, right? But if you really understand grace, how marvelous it is, how magnificent it is, how amazing it is, you are going to be serving him. You are going to be zealous for works, and there's rewards for that. You know, when we come to church, two things need to happen. We need salvation and we need sanctification. Salvation for those who do not know Jesus Christ, those who are anxious to learn about Jesus Christ, and then for everyone else who has Jesus Christ in their heart, sanctification. So today I close asking the question, are you justified? Do you have the Son? 1 John 5, 11, 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have, life, does not have the Son. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so you may know you have eternal life. Do you know tonight? If you don't know, please come up and see Tom Mason after this question. Okay? If you're justified, how are you doing on that process of sanctification? Are you fighting sin? Are you battling sin? Grace will help you conquer sin. And I hope you're all waiting for that great and glorious day the last verses of the Bible said, amen. He who testifies to these things say, amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer that Jesus would come, that we'd be glorified. And it's all by amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these verses, which I think are the greatest verses on grace in the Bible. Thank you that we are saved by grace. Father, if there be anybody today that has never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, may the day at Christ Community Church be the day that they would come to Christ. Father, we are to live a life of sanctification, to be holy vessels to you. We can't be used if we're dirty okay, and sinful and, and be living in sin. We need to be holy. So I pray for all those who are struggling with sin, who are battling sin, that they would understand through grace that the Holy Spirit helps us, that 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has seized us, which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will allow us to have a, a way out of those temptations, out of those trials, that we are to live sanctified. And Father, we long for that great day when we'll be glorified. We long for that day. We live in a sin-sickful world, and every day we see more and more. But we long for that day when we'll be glorified, when this body will be free from the stain of wretchedness of sin and will be like Jesus. We long for that day. May we leave here today knowing that we're justified, working on that process of sanctification, and longing to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.